Welcome back to a new episode of The Leadcast. I'm your host, Joe, and hosting along with me is Antonio, Luke, and Tia. We have four good segments here for you, and we can't wait to share them with you this week. First up is the Kara Fitzpatrick interview provided by Josie. To start, can you tell us your name and what home high school you go to and what you're involved in there? My name is Kara Fitzpatrick. My home high school is Park Hill South. I do track and cross country, and I'm in symphonic band. Uh, and I also do a few clubs there. What are the clubs that you're involved in? I go to women's student union meetings and try M and I also do theater. What has been your experience uh, being a lead student and being involved in those activities at the home high school? Uh, I would say that a lot of those activities, like none of the people there really know that I even go to lead. It doesn't really affect me while I'm there, um, but sometimes transportation is really tricky, especially since I am only 15 and can't drive myself, so the shuttles are pretty shaky sometimes. Other than that, I feel like I don't get treated that much differently there, uh, at least along with like the students, but the administration definitely frowns upon lead kids. <laughs> Have you encountered problems like getting to your classes or back to lead? Absolutely. Um, so I go to band in the morning for first block every other day. And so I ride the shuttle back from Park Hill South to lead. And a lot of times the bus is like 15, 20 minutes late, like on a good day, or it just like doesn't show up, especially on days when there's like early dismissal or there's an assembly at South, stuff like that. It's just all of the shuttles get messed up and no one knows what time to be there. And it's just kind of a hot mess. <laughs> Have you experienced feelings of like being other to students at South? I mean, yes, to an extent. Like, I feel like a lot of the students don't really care like that I go to lead, most of them. But then some of them, whenever I'm like, oh, I'm a lead kid, they're like, ew, you're a lead kid? Like, what's that like? That must be so different and weird. And they do kind of, like, think of you as alien until, like, they actually get to know you. And then they're like, oh, you're fine. <laughs> On that, what reception do you get when you tell people you go to lead? Um, I would say usually, like, whenever I'm like, oh, I go to lead, almost every time people are like, oh, what's it like there? <laughs> like... Oh, it's, you know, kind of like here. We learn, and <laughs> I have friends there, and I don't know. It's maybe a little, like, it's hard to compare what a normal high school experience would be like when I haven't really been there, so I don't really have an answer for that. Uh, do you have trouble explaining what Lee is like to people who aren't even in the Park Hill School District? Um, it's definitely... Yeah, I would say so. Like, a lot of adults that I talk to, whenever I'm like, oh, I go to an alternative kind of school within my school district, they don't really, like, it's not like a two-minute explanation thing. It's kind of more deep than that, so it's kind of difficult to just casually bring it up in conversation. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of adults specifically um, are very interested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What is, like, the outside reception of lead and lead students that you've like heard of from adults and other students alike? 
a lot of people think that lead kids are smarter than normal kids. <laughs> um, just because, like, they learn different. They're like, oh, you're a lead kid. You must be so smart. They're like, no, I just have a different motivation. And Do you think being a lead student puts you at a disadvantage at the home high schools? For any yes. Reason? Well, I feel like a lot of people in the clubs that I do, like, a lot of them have classes together with some people, so, like, they're a little bit closer, um, and it's easier for them to make friends, I guess, uh, at the home high schools, but also I feel like it doesn't bug me that much because I have plenty of friends at lead, so. Do you think there would be a difference between your home high school being south versus Park Hill? I don't know. I mean, I think that <laughs> the shuttle times are like two, a two-minute difference, but other than that, I don't really think so. <laughs> Do you think you have an advantage knowing students that go to Park Hill more than like you would if you were at South? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I mean, a lot of my friends go to Park Hill that go to LEAD, um, so specifically whenever I go to like cross country meets and track meets and band events and Park Hill is also there, um, I like know so many people from Park Hill and it's just kind of fun to be like, oh, I know you, <laughs> and go over and talk to them. Is there any more like stories you want to share about your experience being a lead student going to the South? I, okay, one thing that I would like to share is that South's um, administration, um, like, thinks the worst of lead kids. Um, when there was, so, during theater, there was one day when we did a performance um, in the middle of the day, so we had to get shuttled back to South at, like, 12-ish, and they'd never told us what time to get on the bus and so they said go and eat lunch and then get on the bus and we went and ate, ate lunch and then they were like oh the bus already left and then like eight of us were just stranded at south the administration at south had emailed the administration at lead and was like all your kids were wandering around the hallways and missed the shuttle and when that wasn't the case at all they just didn't tell us what time to get on the shuttle but um yeah yeah they think that like not specifically lead kids but just like all high school students in general are just like dumb and <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't know what they're doing ever <laughs> and are like always trying to cause trouble so have you ever like walked into south for music and like experienced the administration being like why are you here <laughs> like i mean yes <laughs> A lot of times, actually, okay, so I usually go to South during first block, and so they don't really even notice that I'm a lead kid because I don't go through the office, mm -hmm. but a lot of the teachers, when they forget, like, what day it is, they're like, why are you here? And I'm like, I'm bad. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, because I have orchestra in the middle of the day, so they're always like, why are you here? I'm like, we're here for music like we are every other day yeah. <laughs> like at this time this shouldn't be surprising yes exactly they do not really like they don't seem to care about students that much mm -mm. i've also had issues with like the back gate not being open oh, yes. to get us to class on time but 
you wouldn't have that because you have band in the morning. Yeah. yeah. But also, like, what is the point of the back gate? Like, you can just go around it. Yeah, but it takes, like, several more minutes. Yes. <laughs> You're like, we're late now. Um, Thanks for that, South. Yeah, it's not really preventing people from getting into the school. It's just preventing <laughs> students from getting to their classes. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else? That's about it. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Next up is our analog horror with Amir. Hello, this is Amir, and welcome to a follow-up on our interview with Alex Kistner, creator of the Mandela Catalog. In the last interview, we've learned several key points on what make people scared and how horror manages to capture the essence and energy of said things. Now we must answer the question of why those things make us scared. Starting with the obvious point Kister brought up of scary or dangerous things breaking into safe spaces that we know and love, such as children's rooms or just places we grew up in. It's obvious that us, as humans, like to have these safe spaces to reconcile and rest. Anything horrifying, anything human-like that we know isn't human will scare us. Why we are scared of things is our body's way of protecting itself. It switches into fight or flight on purpose and it makes it so that we're able to run away quicker at a moment's notice. Many horrors projects in the modern day also like to tug on scary things happening in the real world or they like to come up with something almost fantasy-like. For example, Gemini Home Entertainment, an analog horror about a planet's mutation and its effects on Earth with an in-depth and almost hard-to-get-into lore, is one of the biggest horror projects on the internet right now. By the same creator, a series known as Morley Grove has popped up. It has expanded beyond analog horror into the world of digital horror, an early internet-esque horror to tug on the nostalgia of more modern teens. And to kick it all off, he's brought back the creature many teens were most scared of as a child. Slenderman. Remy has managed to bring back Slenderman in a unique and horrifying way, to the point that some may even question if the series truly is about that tall, slender man. With several installations in the series that all feel uncanny to a certain extent, and none of which hold enough information for us to piece everything together, it keeps viewers interested and in the dark. And something humans are most afraid of is being in the dark, whether it be knowledge or physically. It's managed to keep us interested with these brilliant sound design and visuals. On the more slightly grounded in reality side of things, there's Monument Mythos. I asked Alex Kansas, creator of Monument Mythos, what the inspiration of his series was. He answered, certain details released by the Trump administration. I didn't press any further, however I recommend looking into that on your own time. Another analog series that's truly stood out to me recently is Richland a series focusing on a remote county known as Richland, on several strange events that are happening to said county, one of which known as the Richland Ghost, a horrifying entity invading the dreams of many deemed to be mentally ill and tormenting them inside of the dreamscape. These mentally ill draw on papers for the foundation in order to show them what the Richland Ghost may look like. Many of them tend to call the Richland Ghost Tangle for reasons that cannot be explained. 
Much of analog horror recently has been piggybacking off each other to get famous, but Richland is different, unique. Unlike certain knockoffs or cheap cop-outs, you can tell there was passion behind this project. With the uprise of analog horror, there is an overwhelming decrease in the quality of said analog horror, with certain series that I'll not name copying off bigger series like Walton Files, Mandela Catalog, Gemini, or even Local 58. It's tough looking for an original series in such an oversaturated world of horror. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about passion. It is extremely obvious to a viewer when you are doing something out of passion or just doing something for the fame. And most of these tend to go for the latter. It is an unfortunate truth. All that being said, analog horror seems to be on a steady downfall, with digital horror being on an even slower uprise. I, I still see a future in the world of analog horror for those with passion and for those who truly love their projects. But for those who don't care about their plot, don't give it a single thought, and for those who don't put effort into their visuals or audios, I see no future for them. Our next segment is an interview with the leadership of the Black Student Union, provided by Kamani and Gabby. Attendance administrator here is lead and also BSU sponsor. So we were wondering what the meeting is about for Dr. Dion and when it will be. The meeting for Dr. Dion was initially a meeting for the leadership team here at Park Hill School District which means all of the leadership for all buildings, all grade levels, and um, you guys are going to present the presentation that you presented to lead staff. What are you hoping to get out of it? I'm hoping to get feedback, change, questions, conversation, just to start it. To say, hey, this is where we're starting at, and let's see how much we can move forward and change things, if that is even up for discussion. But just to put it out there is what we want to do, just to start the conversation. How do you, how do you feel about the meeting? Do you have good feelings about it? I mean, I feel like the meeting should not be something that my kids should feel as if they're in charge or they're responsible for educating teachers, staff, you know, the district on what to do and not to do as far as minorities here within Park Hill School District. I don't think that's you guys' responsibility, but when we initially started the slideshow, it wasn't because we were trying to teach so much. I think you guys were just, just trying to give your experiences of what you've been through within the school district. And then it turned into what it did. So with that being said, I don't think that, I mean, I'm not gonna say that you guys' slides and your presentation is not a conversation piece. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't want you guys to be the reason or the place that they go to to educate others, if that makes sense. Staff, adults, you know, that's not for you guys. It's a lot. 
just having a conversation about the meeting mm -hmm. and the what's and the why's. It, sh it was stressful to you guys. You know, I did not want you guys to have to take on all of that. And then we didn't realize what stress levels it took us to until it actually came up. When we actually had to break everything down to see what is our reason for doing this? You know, like, why are we doing this? Yeah, we want to bring awareness, but we don't initially want to be the people or you guys are kids. You know, you need to stay in your lane, but at the same time, give some type of feedback on what it is that's happening within the district, if you're going to be heard. Okay, like at the beginning of PSU when it first started, or like kind of as it went on, did you expect it to like go this far? I honestly did not know what I was expecting when I started BSU, but I do know that there was a need for some type of group or safe place or home that you guys needed here at Lead. Just like I said, from the first day the doors opened and I'm seeing you guys walk in and taking double takes because you see me sitting at the desk. That let me know right there that y'all didn't see enough of, you know, people that look like you. So I felt the need to start BSU. And I had no idea that it is something that everybody has been trying to do here at the school. Yeah, I didn't expect it to be this big or go this far. And I'm not gonna even say it's this big because it could be bigger, you know? It could be bigger than what it is. And that's where the support comes in, you know? It's not just, I can't do it all by myself. I have to have somebody to back us up. So with me going and bringing what I can from what I know and my knowledge, I feel like it could be more, you know? I think it should be bigger than what it is, like I said, because you guys just need to have these conversations and you need to feel safe at school or, you need to be around people that you can relate to or that has the same, I'm not going to say the same understanding because everybody gets taught the same thing almost in a way. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think, I think it could be bigger than what it is. I'll mm -hmm. say that. Can it go further? Yeah. Is that the hope? Yeah. But I don't want you guys to be the sole providers of everything Park Hill School District for BSU. Yeah, this is your campus. Do what you have to do for your campus. Let's enlighten, educate the other campuses so they can try to, you know, get on board with us. But I think it could be bigger or better than what it is. Is there anything else you want to add or elaborate on? No, not at this moment. Is there anything or any other questions you want to ask me? No. Mm -mm. No? My name is Marjorie. My name is Sydney. My name is Angelina Sousa. I'm Georgia. I'm Naomi. I'm Braylon. I'm Lily. I'm Elizabeth. Okay, the first question is, how did you guys feel when Mr. A first told you that we are going to be presenting in front of the district? At first, I was all about it until other people had to say, and then that's when my mindset kind of switched on it because I actually took in what other people said and kind of realized that what they were saying was true. My initial feeling when Ms. Ray posed the question is that it wasn't my place as a student in this district to be presenting to district leaders, but I saw a need for it, and I know that it's important work that we have to do because no one else is taking the initiative to do so. I also agree with what Braylon has said. Um, I immediately did not want to do it because I feel like it wasn't my job, but I didn't want to seem problematic, so I said I was okay with it, but I wasn't going to present. I was just going to be there, more support. Um, I think it's important, but I don't know how necessary and how valuable our stories would be to district officials that don't know us personally. 
but I did see a need for it and would want to do it in the future. I feel like there's like a definite need for it, but like again, I feel like they won't necessarily like take in what we're saying because they don't know us. They don't know like what we've gone through and what we've done to like be here and like do this for them. So they won't like really take in what we're saying. Okay, the next question is, do you think that it's going to impact? And if you do think that, then what? I think to the right people that are already have a heart um, of wanting more information and wanting to change the impact. Um, but to some, it might not because in their minds, they haven't created a space where they're open to actively work against their biases. Yeah, I feel like if they're willing to listen, they will listen. But if they're not, they'll just shut it off. Yeah, I agree with Naomi said. People interpret things differently, so the people who are willing to actually make a change will take it the way it's supposed to be taken. Those who are very close-minded won't really be affected by it. I think the presentation has the potential to be powerful and impact people's thinking, because I saw it happen here, but I also saw people here ignore the message, in my opinion. So I know that that's also a possibility, and kind of how Lily said, it depends if they're truly listening and trying to learn as individuals and learn our individual stories, because if not, then it doesn't hold as much value. I also agree with what all of y'all saying. I also believe that it takes time and learning. It's a learning process. It's not right away. It is going to be a big impact, but it takes time and learning to, in a sense, convince these people that what we're saying is our truth and our experience and what we have lived. My next question is, if they ask us to do this like again, but with a different district office, would you guys be open to it or no? I definitely don't think it'd be the same presentation that we gave to lead staff um, because it wouldn't make sense. Our stories are personable based off of experiences that we experienced at lead. So going to Kansas City School District and giving that same exact presentation wouldn't make sense. If we tweaked it and had, I think, help um, because we are kids not saying that we don't have a voice that we can't make change, but it isn't always our job and it's not fair to put as much pressure on everybody to do that. And I think if they brought in outside help or even like I know our district partners with SoFix Solutions and I think if they brought in an outside party and we just assisted in any way that we could, that would be beneficial. I don't think it would hit the same as if we presented it to like the staff here because we based it on like the what people at the club been doing to us. So I don't think it would like kind of like hit them the same as how people downstairs took it. I think that we're more thinking about like what we has have experienced, but we're not only talking about yeah we're talking about us individually, but we're also talking about black voices. So I believe that if we're talking about our experience, it's also another black person experience. Because being black, yes, it's not a monolith, but somehow also experience what other black people experience. So I think if it was going to another district and talking about our experience, I think it would be impactful because even though we don't know the people, it's still a black experience and a black story that a black kid might hear and be like, oh, I've experienced that before. So I do believe that it might be helpful. The thing about it is... I believe that like you really can't compare anyone else's human experience to one another. But like Elizabeth said, as black Americans and people of color, we just experience things that are universally experienced by everyone in our community. As sad as that is, my story may resonate with someone that I've never met and someone that I will never know. And also, it's not just about stories, it's 
microaggressions, cultural sensitivity, and those things happen everywhere in all spaces. So I think that message would be beneficial in all spaces. And even in a school district like Kansas City School Districts with more black people, I think it could be even more powerful because those types of things are experienced by a greater group in that district, yeah. Agreeing to Margaret Elizabeth. I do agree, but at the same time, let me share how you Some schools shared the same thing like we did, we faced and all the struggles. Do you think this is like a big step for BSU in general? I think yeah, it's a big step for BSU and not only because we're black students, but like we're black youth. So I think having black youth talk to big adults is really important because these people are grown adults and they know what's right and wrong. And having kids our age, you know, explain our stories and our backgrounds and how we dealt with things is important and stuff like that. I think, like Elizabeth said, elevating youth voices in general is very important. And when we put this presentation together for like our lead staff, watching the vulnerability that it took from like BSG students and like the courage to even present in the first place showed a lot of what is in us and I think it showed the power that we hold and not power that um, just the teachers witness, but power that we found within ourselves. Yeah, also I think it, what Naomi said about being vulnerable, I feel like why a lot of us are not agreeing with uh, talking is because we think that we put up this like wall and border around us to not try to talk about it and stuff like that. But it's okay, I feel like, in, black youth, we think that it's not okay to be weak and vulnerable. And I feel like that word seem like, no one wants to seem weak and stuff, but being vulnerable and open and just talking about your experiences, something that's really important. I think that it was a big step for our Black Student Union. I think it's also important to take a step back and remember kind of what type of work we're dedicated to. Yes, that we are a group that is trying to better our community, our school community, but we're also a club, and I don't want this work to feel stressful. I don't want it to feel like a chore. I want people to enjoy coming here. I want people to want to come to our group. And I think generally in this school, more is expected of us as a union. You don't see true colors being expected to do these types of things. And I'm not comparing the two groups, but we're all clubs. And I think service, community service, it should be an important aspect of all school clubs. And I don't think that we should take that on, feel like an obligation. Because we're a club, we should be able to stay after school, have fun, play some games like other clubs do, and go home and not have to think about the heavy things weighing on all of our lives. So while I do think it was a big step, and I do think these things are important, I don't think that we should always be put in these vulnerable positions, because as kids, as teenagers, we, you don't really see a lot of other people being put in vulnerable positions like us, or like we have this year and last year. I think it was a big step in the right direction, but I also think it was a lot to ask out of students to like put their emotions and feelings like out there in front of like people they don't know. But I also think that it raised awareness what black students are going through and just students of color in general. Are you guys hoping to achieve anything out of this presentation that we will be doing? What I told like the BSU group going into it is I think a lot of times we get caught up in how people receive it instead of thinking of it as something for us. If we do decide to do it, 
I think we should do it with the intent to get what we want people to know out and get our experiences out. And I don't think it should be the pressure of how people take it because it doesn't matter. It's about us. It's about sharing our stories. It's about us being vulnerable. I also agree. I think it's more of a being more optimistic and being more selfless and selfish. I feel like we're more thinking about ourselves and stuff, which you know, we should think about ourselves, but this is about the entirety of all black students and people of color in general, because there's a lot of people of color that's not in this room that don't have a voice, that don't think they have a voice. So it's really important that we share our experience to these people and stuff like that. Okay, if we do decide to have this meeting, what are some things that you guys think that we're going to share with them? I think we're still going to keep sharing about microaggressions, cultural competence and sensitivity, um, and learning and making personable connections with your students more. So if you don't mind me asking, what are microaggressions? Microaggressions are any subtle comment hinting at the word micro, which means small, that is offensive to minority groups. It is typically not intended to be offensive, but that doesn't mean the impact isn't the same. And these statements or questions are typically stemmed from a bias or stereotype that is already in your head. Is there anything else you guys would like to say or elaborate on or something that we didn't cover? I just think this work is very important and it's just sad to see that we're as a group of freshmen and sophomore, were the people really taking the charge on this when these issues have been present in our district for years and have only gotten worse in recent years. I just think it's a shame that we're the ones really trying to push for these things to happen and not the adults in our district, not the adults in our school staff. They should have cultivated that presentation if they saw a need for it, not kids. That's sad for me to see, honestly, that we're the ones having to do this because it shows how much everyone else really cares. And I will say that even if we do decide to go with it or we don't decide to go through giving the presentation next month. I think everybody should just remember to do your own research, work actively against your own biases that are in your head, find the information that you need to. And there's a lot of resources out there and I don't think that it's just us that you can learn from, but if you really have a passion and you really actively want to work against it, you'll go and research it. You have to want better for the district and for these groups of students that are underrepresented. You have to want better for them in order to really take in what they're saying. You have to want, like Naomi said, you have to actively work against your own biases for these things to work. And even if um, they don't have it in their heart to want to change or learn, at least they heard it. It's not unfamiliar to them and it will always be in the back of their mind when future situations arise. They'll remember the talks and Hopefully, eventually, they'll get to a place. It doesn't have to be our presentation that sparks them to make the change, but maybe just a gateway to start the conversation or start the process of thinking about it. But kind of like what Elizabeth said earlier, I don't think, it, all in all, it's going to be a good experience. Young black voices being shared in a room full of white professionals. When is that? I mean, that's going to be a powerful thing regardless, and I'm proud of our entire black community for being a part of that because... It was hard, and we had to plan. We didn't have a lot of time to plan at that, and we've been asked to do it again on a larger scale, so that just shows how highly they think of us and how well the message was received on our school level. So I think the presentation has the potential to have a larger impact on the district at large. Thank you for being here and letting us interview you.
And now, our long-awaited final segment with Aiden covers the recent NFL draft. Aiden, take it away. Hey, I'm Aiden Morris. I'm going to go over my three winners and three losers from this NFL draft. Uh, I'll do the losers first, and my first loser is the New England Patriots. They had several needs on their team. Offensive line was one of their needs. So they go Cole Strange, a guard out of Chattanooga. He was projected to go in the third round. They took him with their first pick, pick 29. However, they did get a steal in Tyquan Thornton. He was the fastest wide receiver in the combine. And explosiveness is what New England needed on the offensive end. And for my second loser, I have the LA Chargers. The main problem with them is it wasn't their star power because they definitely had that, but it was the stuff in between. Their interior defensive line and their overall rush defense, linebackers, all that, they did not have the best pieces. And with their first pick in the first round, they went with, yeah, they went with a guard, Zion Johnson, out of Boston College, when a guy like Devin Lloyd is still on the board. And linebackers are far greater need for them. And then with their next pick in the third round, they still don't address their poor front seven with as they draft a safety. And then my third and last loser, who I think should be, for obvious reasons, the Green Bay Packers. They had two picks in the first round, and their main need, their only need, I would say, is wide receiver. They traded away Devontae Adams, and then... Just they they didn't take a receiver in the first round again this year when they really needed one. They had they had the picks to trade up, but they didn't. So instead, with twenty two, they took Quay, they took Quay Walker, linebacker, and then twenty eight they took a defensive tackle Devontae Wyatt. That's, that's it for my losers. Now for my three winners. Well, first I want to give an honorable mention to the Eagles for getting AJ Brown and Jordan Davis. All right. On to my first winner, the whole city of New York, the Giants and the Jets, they had, they both had two top 10 picks, and they knocked them right out of the park. The Giants got who I think is the second best edge rusher in Kayvon Thibodeau, and they got who I think is the best tackle in Evan Neal. Both of them should make an immediate impact, and maybe the Giants go back into relevance. And then the Jets get the best corner in the draft, Sauce Gardner. The Jets' pass defense has been awful since Darrell Revis left. And that was a long time ago. And with their second pick, they take another wide receiver to help out Zach Wilson. Garrett Wilson out of Ohio State. The Jets also drafted Jermaine Johnson, a stud edge rusher that was projected top 10 but somehow got him at 27. Alright, for my second winner... I have the Detroit Lions. They get the best player in the draft, who I believe is Aiden Hutchinson. Monster defensive end out of Michigan. And then with their second pick, they take Jamison Williams. And that's far needed. And it's quite frankly long overdue for the Lions to draft a, a fast, explosive wide receiver. They haven't really exactly had one since maybe Golden Tate. And then for my third and last winner is a tie between the Ravens and the Chiefs. The Ravens get the best safety and the best center in Kyle Hamilton and Linderbaum. And then the Chiefs, they get Trent McDuffie and 
George Karlafis. They go defense in the first round, which I feel like it's been forever since their defense always kind of sucks. Are my three winners and losers. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, and we will catch up with you next week.